Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And today I am hanging out with James Rhodes. He is the author of Instrumental, a memoir of madness, medication, and music. It's just out from Bloomsbury, and he's come over from London to be with us here today. So I'm delighted to meet you, James. It's really nice to be here too, man. Thank you for having me. There's a lot packed into this, and I want to get into it. Uh, I want to touch on as many bases as I can as possible. Let's just plunge right into into the hard stuff for listeners and let them know. I mean, one of the core themes of this memoir is basically your lifelong coping with the effects of childhood sexual abuse. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, I would say primarily it's... It's a book about music, about classical music. It's a love letter to that. It's a book about fatherhood and a love letter to my son. And also it's a book that talks about difficult things that I think we all need to talk about more. Um, so it's basically a book about classical music and child rape. So it's, it's a comedy. Um, <laughs> um, and it's certainly not going to be found in Walmarts. But it's, it's an opportunity to, in my own words, talk about things that I think we need to be talking more about. Whether it's mental illness or suicide or, or self-harm, it's stuff that's, that's important. You know, you just mentioned that combination of classical music and child rape. But it really is for you. I mean, classical music is one of the things that makes it possible for you to cope with a life of, of having yeah. endured child rape. Music, yeah. I think. I hate the phrase classical music. Music. And, and that's by no means unique to me. We all... I, I, it would be unimaginable for any of us, I think, to have a life without music. And for me in particular, music was the one thing, the one consistent thing that has never let me down. It's been like a kind of miracle drug. And, you know, I'm not a writer. I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm a concert pianist. And... My life today is filled with music, thank God. Um, and I'm one of the lucky ones who, from the age of seven or eight, always knew what he wanted to be, which in my case was a musician. And somehow, by some weird fluke, I've ended up doing that. You say weird fluke, but it's not an understatement because you knew what you wanted to be at seven. You are that now in your mid-30s. But there's a huge gap where you went off and did something else for, and had no thoughts of ever becoming a professional musician. I did it all the wrong way around. You know, you normally start at four and by 14 you're playing all around the world. And I didn't get my first proper piano teacher until I was 14. And then at 18 I stopped for 10 years and I, I worked in the city in finance, which is the only thing in the book I'm just absolutely terribly embarrassed about and I can only apologize for. And then I decided I, I would give it a shot because, you know, the old cliche, life's too short, and decided to retrain as a concert pianist. And you know what? I think it's a really lovely thing because how many people have always wanted to be a writer or a painter or a dancer or an actor or a musician or a sports personality, and yet somehow we end up kind of trapped in this weird life with maybe a dodgy marriage and a job we don't really like, and suddenly it's kind of beaten out of us. And... To actually step out of that and go, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I don't care if everyone thinks I'm crazy. I don't care if I lose my house over this. I'm still going to do it. And that's what happened to me. I lost a marriage. I lost my house. I lost kind of everything. But I got there in the end. And it reminds me of that great Bukowski quote where he says, find what you love and let it kill you. And I think we need more of that now more than ever in the world in which we live. The funny thing is, is that that wasn't even the plan. You had a very successful business career, although it was eating you alive, but the money was coming in. 
And then you sort of decided you were going to become an agent to classical musicians. Yeah, I didn't think I was good enough to be a concert pianist. I mean, obviously, I was 28, hadn't played in 10 years, and I mean, the whole concept was ridiculous. So I thought I'd do the kind of next best thing for me and, and become an agent, and that way I could live kind of vicariously through other people. I'd still be around music, I'd still be listening to them play. And a bit like if you see a really hot girl that you think she's way out of your league, so you kind of go to get close to her best friend in the hope that maybe something would happen later on with the hot one. And I found an agent who agreed to open an office with me. He was a very successful agent, looked after my favourite living pianist. Um, we agreed we'd open an office together in London. And he said, come over and show me the ropes. I'll show you the ropes. I'll show you how to do it. Uh, I went to his place in Italy, in Verona. And he said, do you play the piano? And I kind of mumbled that I played years ago, but not for a long time. And he had a little Yamaha grand piano. And he said, why not play me something? I'd really love that. And so I did. And I thought it was absolutely dreadful. But I hammered my way through some Chopin, I think. And and then afterwards, I turned around and he just looked at me. And he just said, you know, I've never heard someone play like that who's not a professional pianist, and you're not going to be an agent. You're going to come every month to Italy. You're going to study with my best friend, who's the best teacher I know, and you're going to try and become a concert pianist. And it may not work, but you have to try. And so in that moment, kind of everything changed, and that's what I did. It took me five years working my ass off with this crazy teacher in Italy who was violent and aggressive and brilliant. And after five years, I was finally able to consider a career as a pianist. While all of that was going on, all of the upheavals that came with that, because you were upending your career in many ways, your marriage and mm. and your your family relationship, all of that upheaval basically churned up um, yeah, the childhood things. I think so. I mean, look, the childhood stuff was always that I'd never dealt with it. And the one thing I realize now, and, you know, hopefully I don't think it's too late, is that you just can't run away from this stuff. You can't go through that amount of trauma as a kid and just pretend everything's fine and push it down and get what seems to be a normal job and have a normal relationship and pretend everything's okay. It just it doesn't work. It comes out sideways. And what happened is because I never did any of the work around it and looked at it in detail, I ended up, I mean, in real trouble real quick. And at 28, 30, I think I was 31, I ended up in a locked psychiatric ward, the, the first of many, several suicide attempts, nine months in various locked wards, and it was it was really tough, it almost killed me, but, you know, I got out the other side and, and it took some time, but again, thank God for music, because when I did get out, I had a piano, and piano doesn't talk back, and the piano doesn't have bad side effects, and it doesn't mess with your head too much, and it kind of kept me on an evenish keel. You mentioned the institutionalization yeah. and the hospitalization, all of which early on at least had the effect of getting you sober. Yeah, well, the first the first ward I was in, I was young, I was 19, and that got me sober. I haven't had a drink or a drug since then, which is nearly 22 years, if you can believe that. And that's pretty much the only thing it did for me. And you know what? That kept me alive. It's incredibly hard to kill yourself if you don't drink. Really, it's much easier to commit suicide when you're drunk or using alcohol or drugs. And when I did make my attempts, I, there was some stubborn part of me that would not do it using drink because I just couldn't do it. But what the later hospitalizations did was to kind of keep me alive, medicated, unbelievably medicated. But it kept me alive and it got me to the point where I was willing to kind of fight for my own life rather than other people fighting for me. 
in that time you also discovered self-harm, or as it's more commonly known in America, cutting. Yeah, which is an epidemic. I mean, all around the world, we, we, <laughs> it's such a misunderstood and baffling thing to many people. It, it's not an indication of suicide ideation. It's not a suicide attempt. It is a desperate kind of attempt to shout out for help. It's an incredibly powerful way of controlling pain and referencing just how much hatred we have towards ourselves. And it's not, of course, it's not just kind of teenage girls who are doing it. It's, it's men and women and children of all age groups and all socioeconomic groups. And it's tremendously powerful and very addictive. And honestly, of all, I've done a lot of drugs and I've done a lot of addictive things. The hardest thing that I've ever had to do is to stop cutting because it's, I mean, you can do it anywhere and it's private. There's a great ritual involved. It has an immense impact, releasing endorphins and all kinds of chemicals in the brain. But, you know, luckily it's been, it's been a few years now since I felt it necessary to do that. When you write about it, you write about it with that kind of frankness of, of saying, you know, let's look, this is what it does for us. You know, this is what it does for me, for people like me who are in these situations. This is why we do it. And you write very frankly about the feelings of shame mm. that are connected with your history and, and how that, no matter how far you advance, it's um, always there. It's always it's there. The You're always on the thing. edge. Absolutely. Shame is, is the absolute killer. It's the, it's the one thing that will end up with you throwing yourself out the window. And I think if you ask anyone who's been raped that I imagine they would agree that shame is, it's that constant deep down ingrained feeling that somehow it's all my fault. And that, I don't think we'll ever leave. And it's, you know, it's strange. And a part of the reason for that is because when you're six or seven and someone six or seven times your age and size is is fucking you every week and telling you that no matter what, you don't tell. And if you say anything about this, unimaginably bad things will happen to you. What that does is it, it makes you a partner. It makes you complicit in it. And so every time you're around that person, when there are other people, if it's a teacher or a minister or you're relative and you have to smile and shake hands and act normally you become even more complicit you're protecting them and so you form this weird kind of toxic bond where you feel well we're now partners in this thing and that's not you know a six or seven year old shouldn't have to deal with that kind of emotional stuff it's it's too much and so the legacy of that is so much shame that you know it is my fault i was cute i flirted i wanted the attention i didn't say anything and and that's that's the hardest thing, the hardest thing to let go of. It seems like, one, there are so many potential small triggers throughout just throughout the day. And you touch upon this very tangentially in the book because it's not really part of the main story. But, you know, when something like the Jimmy Seville story happens mm. at a national level, you know, when the nation is grappling with something mm. like that. I mean, we're going through a situation right now where our president is an admitted serial sexual predator. And so I think that there's a lot, it, it feels like there's a lot of people in America who can probably relate to that kind of feeling of, you know, what happens when basically the entire culture yeah. is reminding you of your trauma. It's, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, there's a lot to unpack in that. I mean, what happens when subjects like this are still taboo, mental illness and child abuse and self-harm and, 
is that we end up with the monster we have running the country. He's the most powerful man in the world. It's absolutely terrifying. I thought we were bad in England with Brexit, but that doesn't even come close to what Trump is doing. It's it's genuinely terrifying. But again, you know, when you have a culture that seemingly endorses the sexualization of children, whether it's in the media or whether it's online and in the language that we use, it's it's really disturbing. I mean, just the language we use. You know, we talk about people molesting children. I mean, what does that even mean? Even abuse is, abuse is you know, when you, you get a parking fine and you tell the warden to go fuck himself. That's abuse. When when you're raping a seven-year-old child and you're 45 and three times his size, that's, that's not abuse. And I think we need to choose our words very carefully. As far as I'm concerned, now with Trump in charge, any possible hope of there being any kind of light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to mental illness in America is has just completely gone out. I mean, there's just no doubt. I, if I lived in America, I would be on the first fucking plane to Canada right now, I tell you. This is going to be a weird transition. I, I, really <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but because I do want to talk about classical music Great. And, and music. Just what you said right now about the point about the ways in which our culture, you know, fetishizes uh, the sexualization of, mm. of, of young children and, and adolescents. You write a lot about the ways in which classical music is badly presented yeah. to the public at large. That it just occurs to me that one of the things that I'm sure you probably have a lot to say about is, you know, we package preteen and early teenage girls and present them as like, you know, oh, here's the next beautiful voice in classical yeah, yeah, music. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's crazy. And it's, I mean, it's not just that side. The whole industry is in trouble with classical music. From the presentation to the promotion to the concert formats. And I mean, everything's just <laughs> it's diabolical. The only thing in classical music that must stay the same is the music itself. We don't need to cheapen it. We don't need to dumb it down. We don't need to cut it up. We don't need to add anything to it or take anything away. But the presentation around it, classical music, it, it, it's still appropriated by a certain kind of person who wants to keep it just for themselves and people like them. People who will wear a tie, who will know when to applaud, who understand about the difference between an allegro and a presto and how many movements there are in a Beethoven sonata. All of that's bullshit. None of that matters. If Beethoven came to a concert today, he would just fall on the floor in horror at how we're presenting it. Which is why, you know, I do concerts, I, I wear jeans, I talk to the audience and explain the pieces and put it in context. The lights go out, we can switch off. There's no mobile phones, there's no Twitter and Tinder and Celebrity Masterchef and commercial. It's just, it's one of the last places you can just close your eyes and disappear. And... You know, classical music is in even more trouble because of the total lack of education now. All around the world, not just in England, but here too. I mean, we're speaking about Trump, God help us all, but this is a guy who bragged about punching his elementary school music teacher in the face when he was a kid because Donald, God bless him, felt that the teacher didn't know enough about music. It's really scary. Whole millions of children around the world have no idea who Bach is, who Beethoven is. And that, to me, I mean, that's, it's terribly sad, because you can draw a line right from Bach all the way through to Justin Bieber, and they need to understand the history of it. And music is about so much more than playing an instrument. Music education, it has a positive impact on focus and self-esteem and discipline and teamwork and confidence, and even math and English, it has a knock-on proven effect. So the fact that we're kind of destroying that 
at a grassroots level is is terribly depressing. In terms of contextualizing the music as you do in your concerts, mm. you know, each of the chapters here, you've picked out a piece. You talk about why you've picked each of those pieces. You know, you've basically provided a soundtrack for your own memoir. That's the thing I am most excited about in this book. I don't care if you don't buy the book. It's, it's expensive over here. I think it's like 28 bucks. So don't buy the fucking book. I don't care. But there is a, a Spotify playlist called Instrumental, which has on it maybe 22, 25 pieces of the greatest music of all time, from Bach to Ratmanov and everything in between. And if you want to know a little bit more about this kind of music, you're not quite sure where to start, and you would do not want to get one of those 50 best shell-out classics ever, please don't. You can listen here, and, and it has... There will be stuff on there that may just change your life forever. And it's one of the things I'm most excited about in the book, that suddenly now, all around the world, there are hundreds of thousands of people listening to this music who may never have, have listened to it before. You, know, you mentioned before that you're not a writer, but you, you've been writing articles and, and things all along. And what prompted you to... To write this, to write your story out. To get I, it I was asked. I mean, I wrote a piece for The Guardian in the UK about creativity. And then I get an email and meet for coffee with a really nice woman who said, look, I've read this piece. I've seen some of your stuff on TV. Would you write a memoir? And I thought, it's ridiculous. I was like, I think, I can't even remember how old I was, 38, maybe 37. And I just thought, there's no way I can write a memoir um, at this age. And then I stopped and I thought, and I thought, you know what? It's such a great opportunity to talk about music, to talk in my own words, and to talk about the difficult things, like I said earlier. And and so I, I said yes, and I did it. What I didn't expect is this major fucking lawsuit that took $2 million in 18 months and the Supreme Court to allow me to publish it. That came as a bolt out of the blue, because it's a book about music and mental health, and it's my story, and the fact that for a moment, I was gagged from writing or speaking in any medium anywhere in the world about my past was genuinely terrifying. Yeah. And, th and that could have been a permanent thing. Yeah, let's talk about that because, you know, there's a brief author's note at the beginning that mentions it. And then you talk about it in more detail at the end. It's like, I mean, one of the most powerful aspects of memoir, as you've just alluded to, is the ability to, like, get all that out there, to tell, to tell your own story, to yeah. deal with your own history. Yeah. And then... Your ex-wife comes forward and says, no, I don't want that out there. E even though it's like, I mean... There's nothing about it. There was no yeah. privacy. There was no libel. It would be like someone... You know what it would be like? It would be like they're making an Amy Winehouse documentary. And on the day of release, like they did, and it was a great documentary if you haven't seen it. The day it's due out in theaters, they get a letter from the lawyer from some woman in Idaho who says, you know what? My daughter loves Amy Winehouse. But I reckon if she sees this film... She might start drinking. Uh, it might be a bad influence on her. They would then have precedent to pull the entire film if this case I had lost it. And that's terrifying for writers, for journalists, for actors, for anyone in any kind of creative art. The fact that somebody could have the authority to just remove your past and stop you from talking about yourself is really, really scary. We don't ban books in England. We haven't done it for years. And even the last one we did back in the 80s, I think, was overturned. So it was a really, you know, when you're in court and you've got lawyers at $1,200 an hour saying that you're writing toxic material that's like a hand grenade. I was compared to a husband knowingly infecting his wife with AIDS by a lawyer for wanting to write this book. I mean, it was absolutely insane. And thank God, eventually, 
the Supreme Court intervened and unanimously basically said, what are you doing? Of course he can publish his book. Shut up. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, it's like you know, James has a right to tell his story. Well, that, we all have a right. Mm -hmm. And what's so terrifying is you mentioned Jimmy Savile and you know we've got plenty of cases here in, in the Catholic Church and in schools of, of you know endemic child abuse. If it took me the best part of, you know, 18 months and an awful lot of money and some famous friends and a whole team of lawyers and experts, if it took me that much work to be able to tell my story, how many people who have gone through similar things will never have the opportunity? Because someone somewhere doesn't want us talking about this. It's got to stop. We've got to talk more about this. It doesn't define me. It's not the only thing I talk about. I'm a musician. I go on tour. I release albums. That's my job. But... Fuck you if you think that you can tell me that you shouldn't talk about this part of your, of my own past. It's not right. I mean, there were parts in there where they're even quibbling over the length, like, not just the book, but you were, at a certain point, they were like, well, we kind of want to enjoin him from talking about this at all. And yeah, no, was, that was <laughs> the point. It was a yeah. gagging order. And it got, it got so crazy that we begged them to allow a public domain exception, because I was doing a lot of press for a TV show at the time. Mm -hmm. And it, at, at that point, given the injunction that was in, in place, I couldn't talk about anything. And we said, we need a public domain, etc. And they said, well, anything he said in the press in the last two years, he's allowed to say, fine. But he can't use graphic language. And I was like, well, what the fuck does that mean? You're a judge. Define graphic language. And, and they said, well, for example, you can use the word rape, but you can't use the phrase getting raped. And it was so weird and it was so ambiguous and it ended up that these judges and were like my kind of editors. Before every interview, I would have to get the all clear from them on what I was going to say. And it was so messed up and it was so confusing. No one knew what was happening. It was such a mistake. They were so critical of the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court. And I don't, I, she hadn't even read the book, the judge who said it had to go to trial. She just happily said, fine, we'll put the injunction in place and we'll decide at trial if this like it because it was such an obscene book. It's not an obscene book. Yeah. And I, I want to stress that for people who are, who are hearing this, that this is not at all an obscene book. I mean, he, Jamie talks frankly about the things that happened to him, but simply as a matter of frank discussion and of putting things out on the table. It's uh, a hopeful It's book. a hopeful book. Yeah. I think so. And it's, you know what, the truth is all that stuff they were complaining about was maybe 2% of the entire mm -hmm. book. The rest is about music and love and life and, and how do we function in the world in which we live today when, God damn it, all of us have gone through trauma. I don't care who you are, we're all crazy. We are all diagnosable with something. Whether it's mild anxiety or whether it's really severe depression, we all, we've all got something. And I hope this book gives a little window into this idea that we're all kind of connected. We're all fighting the same demons to one extent or another. And maybe this is a way we can kind of get through to the other side. Where do you go from here? I mean, now that you've written a book, do you feel like, hey, I could do that again? Or I'm definitely writing again. I, I've just released one in England called How to Play the Piano, which promises anyone with two hands that within six weeks they will be playing a Bach prelude, even if they've never touched a piano before, which I think is a great thing to do. Um, I've got a follow-up to Instrumental coming, which I've just handed in the first draft, and writing more books, more articles, got a seventh album coming out, radio shows, um, documentary about Glenn Gould, one of my heroes, and of course, lots of concerts. Uh, so it's really, it's busy, and it's exciting, but it's what I always wanted, which is a life engulfed with music and surrounded by music, and yeah, it's stressful, and I don't know if I'll be here in a year to talk about it, but it's looking good so far. Well, even with all the stress, 
and the anxiety. It sounds like a wonderful life. It is. And it's certainly a compelling life to read about it. It is called Instrumental. It's a memoir of madness, medication, and music. It's out here in America from Bloomsbury. And I've been talking with the author, James Rhodes. You've been listening to Life Stories, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you might go to iTunes and throw a couple stars at it, maybe write a nice review. That just makes it a little bit easier for other people to find the podcast. And if you subscribe through iTunes, you'll also find out whenever new episodes go online. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope we'll be together again soon. Thank you.